Up next, a young woman is dead, and the neighbor says the killer is a window peeper. She was uncomfortable about that. She does not feel like it was a very safe place. I had no idea how this could happen. Despite the evidence, the case can't be solved. We're working on it, but we don't have any viable leads at this time. Until police find evidence their suspect had killed before. I don't think he was finished. I don't think he would have stopped. For Stephanie Bennett, graduating from Roanoke College was only the start. Armed with a business degree, she took a job with IBM and was anxious to finally earn some money. She was really starting her life. She was a young woman with a lot of potential. She was excited about being on her own. But after working there for about a year, one day, she just didn't show up. She was a very responsible young woman. She was somebody that always showed up to work on time. When nobody could get in touch with her, everybody got concerned. So family members asked her apartment manager to check up on her. 911, location of your emergency. I need somebody to come down to Lakeland Drive immediately. I've got a dead person. Is the person conscious? She's dead. Stephanie was found dead on the bedroom floor. She had a very dark indention around her neck, which was obviously due to strangulation. Stephanie didn't have an enemy in the world. It just, I'm I mean, flabbergasted. I had no idea what how this could happen, why it would have to be Stephanie. It just, there was no reasoning for any of this at all. There was no sign of forced entry into her ground floor apartment, although the killer might have come in through her bedroom window. The window screen had been removed from that window, which would indicate that somebody had possibly gone in through that window. Nothing was stolen, but some items in the apartment, a phone, a water glass and a box of tissues were found in the closet of the second bedroom. The closet itself almost looked like some, maybe somebody had been in that closet um, in waiting. The killer was apparently wearing gloves. They told me there were no fingerprints at all at the crime scene of anybody other than the ones that belonged in the apartment. Outside in a line of bushes near the apartment, Investigators found items that might have been linked to the murder. There was six pair of women thong underwear strode in those bushes. At that point, it appeared that um, this crime may be sexually um, motivated in nature. None of these items, however, was Stephanie's. The medical examiner estimated that Stephanie was killed sometime around midnight. Investigators learned that Stephanie was on the phone with her boyfriend, Walter Robinson, around 8 p.m. So Walter was eliminated as a suspect since he was a four-hour drive away from Stephanie's apartment and had witnesses to prove it. Stephanie, she was certainly a low-risk victim. Uh, she didn't engage in anything that could be characterized as risky behavior. Just an, a normal girl from a very good family. Then police learned of an email Stephanie sent several weeks before her murder. She'd emailed my sister and said she was afraid, but she never conveyed that to me. Stephanie was afraid because a window peeper had been seen around her apartment building. There had been a report of a peeping Tom, 
And when she found out about that, the peeping Tom had been looking into her window. She didn't see it, but a neighbor saw it and reported it. This alleged window peeper was now the prime suspect. how Steph was never worried about what others thought of her and lived life in such a free-spirited way. She was a dependable friend and a beautiful person. The murder of 23-year-old Stephanie Bennett was difficult to solve because it appeared there was no connection between Stephanie and her assailant. I've covered a lot of murder cases, and I don't think there was ever a case that caused so much fear and concern in the community as this one. Every day when I walk into my office, I see Stephanie's picture. And it's a picture that was taken of her smiling, of her having fun with her friends, having no idea that she would be dying at the hands of someone I believe was truly evil. During Stephanie's autopsy, the medical examiner found signs of sexual assault and recovered a DNA sample. This sample was compared to DNA samples of all criminal offenders in both the state and national DNA databases. There were no hits. There was not a lot of other evidence that was found at the crime scene. It appeared almost like what the suspect brought with him, he took away with him. Investigators also compared the DNA to every male who had any contact with Stephanie, more than 250 people and no one matched. Police spoke with dozens of people who lived in the apartments near Stephanie Bennett's. Many reported seeing a tall, thin man wearing a sweatshirt loitering in the area. One of Stephanie's neighbors saw this person looking into Stephanie's window. A police artist drew a sketch and released it to newspapers and local television stations. Phone calls began pouring in because it was a high-profile um, case here at that time. And numerous leads came in. But after tracking down hundreds of leads, only one appeared promising, a convicted sex offender who lived in the area. We were able to go out and make contact with this individual, looked very promising early on, and got a DNA sample. Our hopes were really up at that point, and we got the call back from the State Bureau of Investigation that it was not a DNA match. Uh, we were very disappointed. With nothing else to lose, investigators went back and re-interviewed the people in Stephanie's neighborhood who claimed they saw the window peeper in the area. This time, one neighbor reported some new information. We actually have one that reported seeing this peeping Tom walking a dog that appeared to be a large Rottweiler-type dog, and that he saw him walking him from Bridgeport Apartments over into Dominion Apartments. Stephanie Bennett lived in the Bridgeport Apartments. So we took our focus from Bridgeport over to the Dominion Apartments. Apartment managers there remembered a tenant with a big black dog who had since moved away. Their very words to us was, we know who you're talking about. His name is Drew Planton, and he is a strange bird. 35-year-old Drew Planton had no criminal history, wasn't married, and worked analyzing fertilizer ingredients at the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. Very reclusive individual, 
later we, we went and interviewed people who knew him and had worked with him and he was just very much to himself, uh, very few friends. When police spoke with Planton at his workplace, he claimed he'd never before heard the name Stephanie Bennett. There wasn't many people within a 50-mile radius that was not familiar with this case. Planton refused to go to the police station, so officers made an appointment to meet him at his apartment the next day. We told him that we would see him at 5 o'clock, and Drew Planton started shaking uncontrollably, like he was freezing cold. And it was so bad that I looked back at him and said, are you OK? And he said, I'm fine. At that meeting, Planton denied any involvement in Stephanie's murder and refused to provide a DNA sample. We always said, maybe when that first person tells us no, that will be our man. But police had no evidence against Planton, and he bore no resemblance to the composite sketch, so they couldn't get a court-ordered DNA sample. For now, it appeared, police had hit another dead end. Police had no probable cause to force Drew Planton to provide his DNA sample for testing. But one of their scientific experts had a suggestion. I said, well, you need to get a sample uh, that was more intimate from him. You need to get a sample which he had, which he had touched or, or used, such as a cigarette butt or a, um, a toothbrush or an item of clothing. But that wouldn't be easy. It seemed Planton knew he was being followed. Surveillance was um, conducted on Drew Plant for a week um, at work and at home, and we could not obtain any DNA um, from that week's worth of surveillance. Ultimately, investigators followed Planton to a restaurant. But Planton was one step ahead of them. He ate nothing but finger foods. When he would get up to go to the bathroom, he would take his straw out of his cup and put his straw in his pocket and take it to the bathroom with him. He flushed all of his napkins. For dessert, Planton ordered some banana pudding, which he ate with a fork. Finally, he picked up his fork and took two bites of banana pudding and then took a napkin and wiped that fork for about five minutes um, and left that fork. And of course, our undercover detectives recovered that fork. Analyst Mark Baudet performed the analysis. I got a mixture of DNA samples, meaning there was one strong profile and there's also one weak profile on there as well. Apparently, the restaurant hadn't properly cleaned the fork. The strong profile was from an unidentified female. The weaker one, from a male, was compared to DNA from Stephanie's rape kit. The one weak profile on the fork was very similar to the profile that was found on the vaginal swabs coming from Stephanie Bennett. But this profile was so weak, it would be inadmissible in court. It was a partial match, which told law enforcement, it told me that we're on the right track. We just needed to get a good DNA sample from Drew Planton. Since Planton worked for the state, Investigators got permission to search his workplace. Mark Baudet swabbed his computer keyboard, his radio, and other items he handled. 
DNA from those skin cells was compared to the biological evidence from Stephanie Bennett's rape test kit. The DNA profile that was obtained was an exact match to the profile of the DNA which was obtained from the sperm sample from the vaginal swabs. Investigators believe this DNA evidence placed Planton at the scene on the night of Stephanie's murder. Based on the evidence, investigators believe the killer broke into Stephanie's apartment through the bedroom window and waited for her in the closet. Investigators believe Stephanie arrived home, then called her boyfriend sometime between 8 and 9 p.m. Prosecutors think her killer watched from the second bedroom and that Stephanie was completely unaware anyone was there. Later, after Stephanie went to bed, he attacked. The evidence shows she was sexually assaulted and strangled to death. But the killer left valuable DNA evidence behind. I think calling Mr. Bennett the, the day that we arrested Drew Planton was one of the, the, the highlights of my career. When police searched Planton's apartment, they found pornography, lock-picking guides, and knives. They also found other disturbing evidence that opened the possibility that Planton may have killed before. When investigators searched Drew Planton's apartment, they found several pieces of mail addressed to a woman in Lansing, Michigan, Rebecca Huseman. The postmark was six years old. A background check revealed Rebecca Huseman was murdered in Lansing six years earlier, and the case had never been solved. Coincidentally, Drew Planton was a student at Michigan State University at the time, which was also just a few miles from Lansing. Rebecca Huseman was working as a topless dancer at the time of her murder. It was something she had not planned on, but she needed the money. She's a very beautiful young woman, and she was trying to make some extra money so that she and her fiancé could get married. After Rebecca was finished work one October night in 1999, a bouncer took her to her car, and she drove away. As she drove up to her apartment, someone, possibly a customer from the strip club, may have made an advance. Whatever happened, the killer fired with a 45 caliber handgun. I need an ambulance. What's the problem there? My girlfriend. I, I just woke up and I noticed that she wasn't uh, with me. So I go out there and she's out in her car and her door's open and I go out there and she's got blood all over her face and I can't hear a pulse or a heartbeat or nothing. The motive clearly wasn't robbery. Nothing in her vehicle had been disturbed. Rebecca's purse was still there. It looks like to me, Based on some of my experience, that it was a personal crime, uh, just because shooting somebody in the face one time 
On the ground near the car was a 45 caliber shell casing. It was the only evidence at the scene. We didn't have much evidence to work with at all. We had no fingerprints, uh, tire tracks, footwear, nothing. Everyone who worked with Rebecca said she made a point of having no personal relationships with any of the club's patrons. She would leave the club and, and not have anything to do with it outside of what she did there for her employment. Dozens of interviews were conducted. No clear suspects emerged. We still focused on the club, whether it was a customer or not. Uh, we were trying to look at some tapes and surveillance tapes and things of that nature, but there wasn't any altercations between her or any of the dancers. When investigators in Raleigh, North Carolina, found Rebecca's mail in Drew Planton's apartment, they called Lansing investigators with the news. They said that if you have a 45 caliber handgun, please let me know. He says, we got two. I says, keep them. Planton's two 45 caliber guns were test fired. Analysts were especially interested in the marks on the shell casings. Imperfections from the firing pin are imprinted on the back of the shell casing when it's fired. And the imperfections on each firing pin are unique to each one made. When the shell casing from the murder scene was compared to the shell casing from Drew Planton's gun, the results were unmistakable. Some very well-defined linear marks, parallel running linear marks that were present across much of the primer surfaces of all the tests and on the evidence cartridge that was entered in the IBIS site in Michigan. They also compared the lands and grooves on the test bullet to those on the fatal bullet. Those also matched. My opinion that it's that gun and only that gun that could have fired it. By this time, Planton was already in custody in North Carolina and things weren't going well. At his court appearance, he refused to walk and had to be strapped to a gurney. When he was wheeled into court for his first appearance, he did not open his eyes. And I believe in Drew Plant's world, as long as his eyes was closed and he did not see it, it may not have been happening. But no one will know for certain all the details in either murder. Shortly before he was to go on trial in Raleigh, North Carolina, Drew Planton suffocated himself with a plastic bag in prison. I was disappointed that we weren't able to have a trial, that we weren't able to sit in the courtroom and hear a jury come back and say, you're guilty of the first-degree murder of Stephanie Bennett. Mr. Planton uh, was obviously a predator. Uh, we obtained information and evidence inside the apartment that led us to believe that he had looked into doing this possibly with other females. Investigators are certain that the forensic evidence would have gained a conviction. But the real satisfaction is knowing that the evidence led to his capture. After we found out who Planton was and did the search of his house, we did find some information on somebody he was probably currently watching for some time. It was very eerie to find that person and realize that you have maybe just saved her life by clearing this case. Well, I know that forensic science played a huge role in this case, and really without the forensic science, without the ballistics, without recreating this case, Rebecca Huseman's murder would definitely have gone cold and unsolved. I truly believe that. 
Forensic science was phenomenal in this case. It was, as one person put it, it is where old-fashioned police work meets modern science.